This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Radio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Carlos Kajina is my technical producer. Ryan White is the live stream producer. Be sure to check out the YouTube and Rumble channel, Strange Planet. All right, we're going to explore some rock and roll mysteries. And uh, the rock and roll detective is here. Jim Birkenstadt has spent a lifetime researching writing and consulting in pop music history. His books on the unreleased recordings of the Beatles, Black Market Beatles, and the making of Nirvana's seminal album, Nevermind, are critically acclaimed. Jim has served as a consultant to the Beatles, Apple Corps, George Harrison, the Traveling Wilburys, the band Garbage, and many international record labels. He's currently the co-star of two pop culture TV series on the Reels channel, Celebrity Legacies and Celebrity Damage Control. As founder of Rock and Roll Detective, Jim's firm offers a number of specialized and confidential services to music artists, record labels, music download sites, TV and film production, auction houses, and museums. His other books include Nevermind Nirvana, The Beetle Who Vanished, and his latest, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Jim, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm great, Richard. Thanks very much for having me on. This is a real pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. I don't need to tell you, you probably have the coolest job on the planet. How did you get into this? (laughs) I have been told that. Uh, I think that I just, you know, while kids were in the 60s and 70s, they were collecting baseball cards and and, uh, memorizing all the the little statistics on the back of the cards. I was collecting records from 1964 on, and I wanted to know who produced it, who played what instrument, you know, and and there wasn't much information on it at the start, but over time people started to write fanzines, word of mouth, or someone knew someone who was at a session and you'd get more detail. So I just became very passionate uh, first about the Beatles, and then and then from there, wanting to know who were the people that influenced the Beatles, which musicians, and then who are these other uh, classic rock artists that came, you know, both during the Beatles' time and after. So uh, it, it was just a passion that continued, even though I had to go to school, I had to become a lawyer, etc. I never forgot that passion. So. 
I think that the first step really was writing a book, which was Black Market Beatles, the story behind their lost recordings. And that was, of course, from a lifelong time collecting all of these unreleased recordings by the Beatles, which, ha you know, now the Beatles themselves have released much of this. But at the time, uh, they had not started to do that. And in fact, my book was brought to their attention while they were working on the Beatles anthology and things sort of uh, proceeded from there. Uh, I, I actually first worked for George Harrison in the late 90s and then uh, he recommended me to the Beatles to start doing uh, historical consulting to them as well. I've got to ask you about working with George, the so-called quiet Beatle who, uh, you know, famously was said, you know, he didn't suffer fools lightly. What was he like? He was super friendly, uh, very down to earth, but very funny. He was anything but quiet, but he was he was just very funny, um, had a real sense of humor about things. Even even, you know, when we think about all the crazy things going on in, the, in our world today, you know, there were crazy things going on then. And and he would, you know, he would take those seriously, but he also could turn them into humorous uh, events as well. But really a uh, great person. I can't say enough about the whole Harrison family. Olivia Harrison is wonderful. Uh, their son, Danny, is a, is really a, a great young man and has done a lot of things on his own. And, and now he's starting to work on uh, spreading the legacy of George Harrison as well, working on, on uh, posthumous projects. Would it be fair to, to call George the reluctant Beatle, the reluctant rock star? It seemed to me he was more interested in, I don't know, Hoagie Carmichael and, and playing his ukulele. Right, right. He loved the ukulele. Um, yeah, I don't think that he really set out so much to be a rock star as he set out to be a musician. And then, you know, after all the fame and fortune started to come through in the, uh, you know, in the 60s, mm -hmm. That's when I think he started to search for, you know, what is life, which is one of his songs. And, you know, what is the meaning of all this? Why are we here? What are we doing? And how can we be better people? And, and how can we find, you know, inner happiness? And so that's when he started a, a really interesting spiritual journey. And, and it started to be reflected in his music as well. Uh, going back to your earlier book, Black Market Beatles, uh, how many, how many unreleased, and I'm including, you know, on bootlegs and so forth, how many unreleased songs remain hidden in the vault, do you think? That, that you mean have not surfaced today? Correct. Yeah, well, you know, the Beatles have now culled through them for uh, a White Album box set, a Sgt. Pepper box set. Uh, a recent Let It Be box set, and I, I assume they'll do more of that. Um, there's always going to be literally thousands of more tracks that, that will probably never see the light of day, but, but people should understand the definition here. Unreleased could mean take 64 of a song out of 80 takes, and that it's a song that you've heard on the radio. It's a song you have on your album. Uh, it's just a slightly different version, or it might even be only a six second breakdown. Someone hits a bum note and they're like, all right, take 68. So 
there, you know, there are a lot of those. So I guess you need to break it down. And, and the way I would do it is there are, there are unreleased demos that the Beatles would do at home working on songs that they would later want to bring into the studio. I think there's quite a few of those still out there that could be turned into a project, uh, whether they choose to make it part of a box set around an album theme or what I think would be kind of cool would be just an entire three or four CD set of all the, all the acoustic demos that John Paul and George did over the years at home. So you have demos, then you have outtakes, which are songs that get left off of albums. And I think all of those, um, I believe all of those have been put onto some of these posthumous projects like the anthology. Um, and then you have alternate takes, and then sometimes you can get really in the weeds with, uh, you know, different mixes, a mono mix, a stereo mix. So, you know, there's thousands of tracks and many of which we don't really need to listen to because, number one, we have the very best final results of their work with George Martin, their producer. Uh, and then the tracks that they've chosen to share with us uh, in these recent box sets over the last decade or so. Jim Birkenstadt is the rock and roll detective and his latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Just sticking with the Beatles for a, a moment yet in that, uh, that, that legendary story about the Beatles quietly coming together in, in 1976, recording an album, not being happy with it. It was never released. How did that get started and are there any kernels of truth to that? Uh, it, I think it got started by an auction house that claimed that they had uh, this master reel from this quiet secret alleged reunion session and that the tape unfortunately had been completely erased and they were trying to auction off a blank tape with the story. Now at the time I was pretty fascinated by that and, and it, I became aware of it once the auction was going to happen, I think in the nineties. And so I took the opportunity to, it said as part of the uh, sales pitch that uh, George Martin and uh, Jeff Emmerich, the engineer were involved in it as well. So I took, a, I took the approach, all right, I'm going to see who I can talk to. I talked to Jeff Emmerich, and he said, never happened. It absolutely, the four of them with instruments were never in the room together in the same country in 1976. So then I, I went, there. there is a book that plots out uh, every single date the Beatles did something anywhere, uh, after they broke up, like a day-by-day -day diary solo activities. And at the time, not all of the Beatles were even in the United States at the same time that this, uh, you know, the, the month and year of 76 uh, was listed on this auction. And I found out that George Harrison was in London, uh, not London, but in his in his home in England. Um, uh, Paul McCartney was on tour with Wings. Ringo was in L.A. and John Lennon might have been in L.A. 
So, you know, the whole thing falls apart when you start to look at, well, what are the facts and where were these people? Was it even physically possible for them to have all been in L.A. at the time? And if so, at that time, people were documenting every little move, every new haircut, everything about the Beatles, even after they broke up in the 70s. So if they had all, excuse me, they had all been there. At the same time, uh, it would have been documented that they were at least in the city at that time, and, and they just weren't. Um, May Pang told, mm-hmm. tells the story of, I'm, I'm not sure about the timing of this, well, when they were together, obviously, before he moved back to the Dakota with, with Yoko, uh, mm-hmm. that um, John was thinking about going down to Kansas City to hook up with Paul. Paul McCartney, I guess, was on tour was in mm-hmm. Kansas City and had invited John to, to go down and meet and, and who knows, maybe even try working together again. And at the yeah. last minute, Yoko Ono kind of scotched that plan. Any Have you heard about that? Is there any truth to that rumor? I had heard that it was uh, New Orleans because Paul was, was recording um, one of his solo records down in New Orleans and he, he had some of the local musicians working on those sessions and I believe he did have some discussions with John about coming down, but I think we'd have to ask John and we'd have to ask Yoko and May and, and get all three perspectives and then try to sift through those and see what we think the truth is. Because unfortunately, history is very fluid. And, and that's why when you are investigating something like that, a story like that, or the stories that I uh, have in the book Mysteries in the Music Case Closed, you really have to look at the credibility of each person. You have to, what are the motives of that person? Do they have an interest in the outcome of telling you the story a certain way? Or do, are they completely unbiased and they just happen to be witnesses and said, this is what I saw? So it, sometimes it's not possible to solve questions like that. Uh, unless we can go right to the people who were all involved in it. Uh, I think Paul might be the one to ask that question. He, um, he might be able to say, yeah, we were planning to do it. And maybe he would say Yoko scotched that or, or John sort of got cold feet or it didn't work out with his schedule. But, you know, I don't know that we'll ever know. But they did, did get together and jam uh, in L.A., for the last time, and it was it was one of these. Uh, Jim Keltner would have different musicians over. It was called the Jim Keltner Fan Club, and he would have them over to a studio on Sundays. And it was some of the greatest people in rock and roll. Every different every every Sunday was a different group of people. But one Sunday, uh, there was Paul McCartney on drums and uh, John Lennon on guitar, Stevie Wonder on keyboard, and Harry Nilsson, I think, uh, singing back up, and there may have been one other. Keltner said that he was actually in the control room. That one's been bootlegged, in fact, so it, it, you know, you can actually hear their voices chatting, you can hear them singing, um, and so they did exactly have at least that we do know they had at least that one jam session together, Lennon and McCartney. 
Jim Bergenstadt is the rock and roll detective, and his latest is Mysteries in the Music. Case closed. So let's uh, dive into the latest book and and uh, this whole discussion about you know the Beatles and did they secretly get back together and so forth leads us into uh, one of the chapters in um, Mysteries in the Music, and that is the Masked Marauders, supergroup or masquerade. Tell me about uh, this this band that supposedly formed in 1969 and some of the uh, the luminaries who were supposedly in this band. Right. Well, you know, just as a little background to give people, you know, who are younger, a little background on the times. This was uh, 1969, and there were a lot of weird vibes swirling around the counterculture at the close of the decade. Uh, One of the events was that the Rolling Stones played a free concert at the Altamont Racetrack in California, and and there was a murder that took place right in front of the stage. Uh, Hell's Angels stabbed a a fan, Um, you know, while the Stones continued to sing. And and then you had Charles Manson with uh, the Helter Skelter murders that brought terror to entertainers in, in California at the time, and he had a cult. And you had this Paul is dead rumor going on in the fall of 1969 about whether or not Paul McCartney had died and all these clues that were on the covers and people were playing their records backwards. And so there was a lot of ruining their needles. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Ruining their their little record needles, uh, as I did. Um, But at the same time, 1969 was a really interesting period because uh, members of different rock bands wanted to begin collaborating and jamming together uh, just to kind of break out of their usual mold. And the term supergroup came into the vernacular at that time, and it gave birth to folk rockers such as Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, as well as uh, Blind Faith, which... Uh, had Eric Clapton, who had come from The Cream, and uh, Stevie Winwood, who had come from Traffic. Um, and so that was kind of a very interesting thing to us rock fans to hear or even hear about fans uh, jamming with each other, or bands jamming with each other where they were mixing up the players. Uh, for some reason, that seemed really cool to all of us kids at the time. So suddenly, uh, Rolling Stone magazine put out a review in their record review column about a band called the Masked Marauders made up of Bob Dylan, the Beatles, and the Rolling Stones, members of those groups. And this was in a pre-viral world word-of-mouth time. We didn't have the internet or cell phones or texting or anything. It was it was, as I tell my kids, I grew up in, in, in the old days of the covered wagon on the Oregon Trail when it came to technology. So, but, but still, we kids were going to school and talking about this stuff. And the DJs on the radios were, were saying, hey, did you read this review in Rolling Stone? And it says that the Beatles and the Stones and Dylan have gotten together. So... That was just mind-blowing that the three sort of biggest artists of that moment in time had decided to work together, according to Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone was really the the only true authority on rock news at the time. There were a few other fanzines, but they were sort of the king of rock 
rock fanzines. So I wanted to know, you know, was this album ever really conceived of? What did this idea come from an origin in truth or was it merely just a fun hoax? And uh, if the album was a hoax, I wonder, did any of the principal artists participate in this hoax? And, um, you know, was it, was it a myth based in reality or what was it? And, you know, it, it turns out that the uh, review itself was just sort of a satirical hoax, a joke when I interviewed Jan Wenner. But I found that there was much more to the story as well. All right. And um, that was the, the brainchild was a Greel Marcus at Rolling Stone? Yeah. yeah. And he used the name T.M. Christian, uh, which stood for The Magic Christian, which was a popular movie at the time. With Peter he, Sellers and Ringo Starr. Yeah, that's right. Jim Birkenstadt is the rock and roll detective, and his latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. We're just about ready to roll into a break here. Jim, how do we get a copy of the book? Uh, people can order it at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. You can order it from your bookstore. And if you want a personally signed copy, you can get it at uh, Mysteries in the no, that's not it. www.musicmysterybook.com. Musicmysterybook.com. And uh, signed copies are, are available there. I would imagine that this is, um, this would be a favorite among musicians because, you know, there are, as you say, there are, there are uh, books out there and, and legends and podcasts uh, that are designed for clickbait. Uh, but you, you approach this more as a as a, a serious journalist, and so are you getting a lot of positive feedback from actual, you know, rock musicians who say, "Yeah, you got the story right. That's how it happened." Yes, um, I've heard from uh, Jim Keltner, who really liked it. Alex Orbison, the son of Roy Orbison, who of course was around when the Traveling Wilburys uh, were around. Um, who else? Um, Chris. France, who is the drummer for Talking Heads and the Tom Tom Club, he loved it. Uh, there's also a singer from the band, a heavy metal band. I think it's called, I think it was Poison. I'm not sure, but um, I, I got word that he enjoyed it. So I'm, I'm starting to hear from musicians who uh, really love the book and, and in fact say, hey, I thought I knew everything about this chapter or this topic, uh, but I guess I didn't. Fantastic. We'll take a quick time. I'll come back. Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective. More in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Jim Birkenstadt stays with us, the rock and roll detective, and the latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. And uh, we were talking about the Beatles, whether or not they uh, they got together again in 1976. Uh, that led us into a discussion of the uh, Masked Marauders, which is uh, which was a hoax perpetrated by Rolling Stone magazine. And again, you can find uh, these stories in Mysteries in the Music. Speaking of which... There's also a story, and this I don't believe is in the book, but uh, when Brian Jones was sort of unceremoniously kicked out of uh, uh, the Rolling Stones, I think he put on kind of a brave face. He says, no, I'll be fine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start a super group. 
was there any truth to that? I mean, or was he just basically, again, trying to put on a brave face? Was he thinking about getting together with, I don't know, Hendrix or, or Eric Clapton? I believe so. You know, from everything that I recall uh, from reading uh, his interviews, from, you know, reading many of the books that have been written about all those people, Brian Jones was really into experimenting. He liked to play different instruments, learn different instruments. He was friends with Hendrix. He was friends with Clapton. He was very good friends with John Lennon. And they were all sort of talking about those things at the time. So I know there was, uh, for example, I saw a letter once uh, at an auction where I think it was Jimi Hendrix sent a telegram or a letter to Paul McCartney suggesting that he was going to do this session with a lot of different players and wondered if Paul wanted to come and play bass. So there was a lot of that talk back then. So I, I don't think it was just um, putting on a brave face. I think that Brian Jones really did uh, believe that he would uh, get together with some of his uh, peers in the music industry and form a new band. All right. So um, you mentioned working with uh, George Harrison and also Roy, Roy Orbison's uh, son uh, on a project. I believe the um, uh, which now which book was made into a movie with Roy Orbison's son. So uh, Roy Orbison's son Alex and Ashley Hamilton, the son of George Hamilton and the stepson of Rod Stewart, former <laughs> son, <laughs> uh, they optioned my book, The Beetle Who Vanished, which is the story of Jimmy Nickel, who was a then unknown drummer in the 60s when Ringo Starr had to go into the hospital the night before the Beatles' first ever world tour was about to start. And back then, there were no out clauses in contracts. There was no insurance. There was just the show must go on. And so uh, the Beatles were forced to locate a substitute drummer. And that drummer uh, was the third person they called. The first two turned them down. And the third drummer was Jimmy Nickel. And he was, he was well known um, for having played with Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames. And he was a very well-respected studio drummer. And they absolutely picked the right guy because... Earlier that year, just by coincidence, uh, I discovered that Jimmy Nickel had recorded a cover version of all the Beatles songs that they were currently playing at the time, which ended up being the Beatles set list for their concerts. And so when they hired, uh, when they brought him to Abbey Road just to see how he played, he knew all of Ringo's parts. It was just, um, you know, the stars aligned for the Beatles to find this guy. So it's a story of how he got to be in that position, what it was like uh, on the uh, tour with the Beatles. And then what do you do with the rest of your life when you're 25 and you've been to the top of the entertainment world and now you're back to being on your own, you know, how do you deal with that? And so, uh, uh, Ashley Hamilton and Alex Orbison optioned the rights and it's being turned into a film in London uh, by ECOS Films. Will it be a docudrama or? No, it'll just be a straight on, you know, rock bio motion picture. Wow. Exciting. Exciting. Who incidentally were the other two drummers that turned them down? Do we know? Oh boy. 
I'm guessing it wasn't Pete Best. I guess they, that bridge uh, was burned, both, right? <laughs> they were both, uh, one drummer was one who owned his own sort of nightclub and had his own band and he didn't want to desert the band. The other one, I can't remember his name either uh, off the top of my head, but he, he was a very well-respected uh, studio drummer who had, I think, worked with the Kinks and other bands. Back then, they'd let the drummer in the band be on tour, but when they went in to record, they'd oftentimes substitute for a drummer who could actually keep time. And so this guy was told, you know, if you leave for two weeks, you're going to go from being the first person we call in those sessions to the bottom of the list. And these guys were making three times the money of the average a British factory worker in those days. And it was great money for not a lot of hours. So uh, that person turned it down as well, uh, not wanting to upset the apple cart. To the uninitiated, you know, they may not be able to tell the difference between Ringo's drumming and Jimmy Nickel, but because Ringo was, I mean, his dominant hand was his left hand, right? So there was that, that style that he had that was, was necessary because he was he was left-handed when you hear jimmy nickel drumming for the beatles versus ringo Starr, can you tell the difference oh absolutely well first of all uh jimmy knew the patterns of ringo for those songs but he didn't really know all of the fills for those songs so one of the differences, and, and one of the things is about Ringo being a left-handed drummer, his fills are very unique sounding, and Ringo really uh, plays more with his wrists. He's not a, a power drummer by any means, but Jimmy Nickel would uh, scoot up his drum seat and really come down hard on the drums and played a much louder, more powerful sound. And also, one of the funniest things, he was used to uh, playing in big bands and, and things all the way back into the late 50s. So one of the things they would do is the drummer would be the last person playing when the song would end. They'd play some sort of a flourish just to help get the audience more uh, clapping more and applauding more. And Jimmy actually did this. There's a picture in my book, The Beatle Who Vanished, where they're in Australia and all three of the Beatles, John, Paul and George are doing their famous bow after the song ends. And you can see Jimmy is still banging away on the drums, whereas Ringo would always finish at the same time. And he would bow uh, on the drum kit, just like the other Beatles. And they all were in sync together. So uh, another little thing where Jimmy was a little more of a flourishing drummer and wanted to show off his abilities Ringo, to me, was a, was really a musician because he played to the song. He wanted to, he was a team player who wanted to benefit the music, and and that's how he played his drums. How did Jimmy? How did how did the Beatles and and Jimmy Nickel get on? Was he considered kind of an outsider, or did they welcome him into well, the band for the tour? Yeah, to their credit, I feel the Beatles did welcome uh, Jimmy into the band because I spoke with people who were on the plane during the tours, who were in some of the warm-up bands on the tours and asked them those questions, in including uh, one, one or two who were actually drummers in other bands. 
Uh, and they said that the Beatles really made an effort to um, befriend Jimmy and, and bring him into the fold, bring him into the conversations. Uh, they never sort of shunned him away. And in fact, Tony Sheridan, who uh, Jimmy Nickel had actually played with Tony Sheridan in London before the Beatles ever met Tony Sheridan in Hamburg and before they ever played with him or recorded with him, Jimmy knew him first. So that when they were on their flight, the Beatles and Jimmy Nickel were on their flight to Hong Kong, which was a very, very long flight that involved stopping in several countries for refueling back then. Uh, it turns out Tony Sheridan was on that flight. And I discussed it because I interviewed Tony before he passed on. And he said, yeah, they, the, the uh, flight attendant called me up front and I was surprised to find the Beatles there. And I was surprised to find Jimmy Nickel there, who we went way back. And so I think when the Beatles realized, oh, he played with Tony Sheridan, we played with Tony Sheridan. I think that was a moment when all of the uh, any sort of reservations went out the window and the Beatles really understood him as a serious musician. And uh, and they all got along really well at that time for that long flight. And that just continued as the uh, tour went on. Great story, Jim. We're going to take another time out. Back with more of my conversation with the rock and roll detective mysteries in the music case closed right after these. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To see the light, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with the rock and roll detective, Jim Birkenstadt. The latest is Mysteries in the Music. Case closed. Once again, Jim, how do we get a copy? Well, you can get copies at my author site, which is www.musicmysterybook.com. Musicmysterybook.com. You can get either signed copies there or there's a link to Amazon uh, right to the book page. Amazon covers it. uh, Barnesandnoble.com, Walmart. It's in bookstores uh, or if it's not, your bookstore can order it. We've been talking about some of the legends surrounding the Beatles, some of the mysteries, supergroups, one of the great supergroups of all time, of course, the Traveling Wilburys. How did they come together? Well, that was kind of a happy, lucky sort of thing. Uh, George Harrison and Jeff Lynne were working on an album together, and uh, it was George's uh, Cloud Nine album. Great album. And... uh, Bob Dylan happened to be touring with Tom Petty at the time. And so Jeff and George went to see the show and hung out with them backstage. And uh, I think that might've been the first time that Tom Petty had met George or Jeff Lynn. Uh, Bob Dylan knew them both. And so um, they started chatting. And then uh, I think that the idea kept sort of, percolating while Jeff Lynn and George Harrison were working on this album together. You know, it'd be kind of fun to have a, a rock band. And, and I think also uh, going back to one of your earlier points that, that George didn't really want to, he wasn't the rock star, superstar type. 
he liked just being in a band with friends and making music. And so the idea of the traveling Wilburys really appealed to him. And so uh, they kept talking about it and they came up with a, the term uh, trembling Wilburys at first. And it changed over time to traveling Wilburys. But then when they, when they moved to LA to do some post album work, uh, they uh, went out to dinner. Yeah, Jeff Lynn and George Harrison went out to dinner with Roy Orbison because Jeff was going to be producing Roy Orbison's next solo album. And the three got on and, and George said, oh, I need to do this uh, B-side or an extended mix or something where back then you had to do all these extra tracks for an album to help market it. And... Uh, Jeff said, well, I don't think we can do that tomorrow, George, because you can't just walk into a studio. You know, <laughs> they're booked out months ahead. And and George said, well, we'll just call Bob Dylan. He's got one in his garage, so we'll try. And they called Bob Dylan. And, and Bob Dylan, who was always touring like 360 days out of every year, happened to be home. <laughs> and uh, so they said, hey, can we come over? I have to work on, uh, I have to come up with a new B-side type song. And then George had loaned a guitar to Tom Petty. Roy Orbison said, well, hey, can I tag along with you guys and tomorrow? And, and of course, they said yes. So you already have George, uh, Roy, and Jeff Lynn on board you're going to bob dylan's house you're going to tom petty's to pick up a guitar and when uh george went to pick up the guitar at tom petty's house uh george mentioned that he was going to work on a b-side over at bob dylan's house and tom said oh good i was wondering what i was going to do today so tom invites himself along next thing you know you got all five of the wilburys sitting in a garage and they say well george what are you going to call us and he looks around and there's a box, like a guitar box, you know, a UPS type box that would hold a guitar in Bob's garage. And it says handle with care. And George says, I'm going to call it handle with care. <laughs> so they just started, you know, he just started asking them to add some words and things. And then he thought, well, I got all these people here. We might as well all, you know, do this song together. So they did. They recorded Handle with Care there. And when he took it to the uh, record executives at his label and said, here's my B-side. And they heard, you know, each one of these guys have distinctive voices and heard Jeff Lynn and Bob Dylan and Roy Orbison and Tom Petty singing along, along with George Harrison. They're like, wait, what is this? And uh, that's kind of when they said, oh, well, why don't you go back and turn this into a group? You know, and this is too good to just be some B-side in Germany. And so that's kind of how they were born, the short story of it. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Synchronicity. Yeah. All the stars aligned uh, and we all benefited, of course. Yeah. Uh, just have about 30 seconds here before the break. But then how did Jim Keltner come in? Because he was the drummer. Well, Jim had played a, a lot with George Harrison on his solo records, and they were very good friends. And uh, they, you know, thought of him first when they needed a drummer 
for the traveling Wilburys. Fantastic. All right. We'll take a quick time out. Jim Keltner stays with us. Sorry, Jim Keltner. Jim Birkenstadt stays with us. <laughs> the rock and roll detective. Mysteries in the music case closed. Back with more in a minute. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. And uh, we are back with the rock and roll detective. Jim Birkenstadt is uh, my guest. Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, is the latest. And um, let's see, where do we want to go next? Uh, we, we've got about 10 minutes here. I want, to, uh, I want to talk about, we talked about the masked marauders. Let's talk about another masked uh, musician, um, the, uh, the Masked Marvel. Tell me about the Masked Marvel. Well, I was fascinated by this guy. He, he's considered the king of the Delta Blues, and he had started out, you know, working the fields. He was a young black man. This was in the 1920s, but he just felt like he didn't want to be a sharecropper. He didn't want to do what everyone else in his race was sort of destined to do. And he, he wanted to travel. He wanted to see places and he learned guitar and, and started to travel around the Delta and play a lot of uh, these small, they were sort of like shacks in those days where there'd be some food and drink and a, a stage and, he also played at his at the farm there, Dockery Farms. And one day, and this is another interesting thing, not many black men at that time could write letters, you know, or, or even read and write. They just hadn't taken the time to do that. But this guy, he really had. And so he wrote a letter uh, to a guy named Mr. Spear, uh, who was a record store owner, but he was also a... Um, a talent scout on the lookout for new musicians for uh, at least one label, Paramount Records, which was uh, up in Wisconsin at the time. They had started out as a, uh, like a rocking chair company. Then they started making uh, cabinets for Thomas Edison's uh, record players. And then they said, Hey, we should, we should get in the business of making records and sell records with the cabinet and all of that. So they got into it. And so Henry Spear uh, went over to Dockery Farms, met this guy and, and uh, said, hey, you know, play some songs for me. And after about an hour, he said, yeah, I think this guy's got potential. Had him over to the uh, record store where he had a studio upstairs, recorded him some demos, sent him off to Paramount. And then Paramount said, yeah, let's... Let's have him come up north and, and record for us. But what's interesting was at the time, music was very segmented. And so uh, this artist, this blues artist, could sing different styles of music. He, he could sing blues, he could sing rhythm and blues, but also he was into gospel music because he had come from a religious background. But from a marketing standpoint at the time, and things were not as sophisticated in the, there were, you know, you couldn't even call it a record industry at the time. It was more of a cottage industry. And you didn't have 
the ability to just distribute things nationwide very quickly like you can today. You really had to go radio station to radio station to, to get records played on the air, and then people in that area might go to their store and request that record. So this company wasn't quite sure what to do with this gentleman because he had all these different styles. So one of the things that they came up with was the idea of using different pseudonyms uh, for his name, which served a number of purposes. One, they could make it look like they actually had two or three artists for the price of one on their roster. It looked that way when you'd look at the song selections and the topics. Two, they could uh, license some of this music to other companies, which is something they did back then. And it would look like, hey, we have a gospel singer doing these songs, we have a blues singer doing these songs. Um, and then the third thing they did was they came up with a contest to see if they could sell more records using mystery. So they gave this uh, uh, gentleman the tagline Masked Marvel and put it on his records, his first, the, one of his first records, and said, uh, you know, and then had these flyers, the record store saying, if you can guess who the Masked Marvel is, we'll send you free records. And that ended up normally if they sold, oh, 5,000 records, that was a big deal back then. This was like 1929. Wow. But, but, Great marketing idea. Yeah, but this ended up they, sell, they sold 15,000. And so it was really interesting how I, I was interested not just in this gentleman who I not revealed his name because it's a mystery and you'll read it in the book, but I was fascinated by how they used early pseudonyms, you know, long before Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band or, or other pseudonyms that we hear about today. And of course, all the Nelson Wilbury and the Traveling Wilburys all use them as well. But this went back to the late 1920s. And then I talk about how the uh, Great Depression of 1929 hit just as his career was launching and how it affected both him and the record company at the time and how they dealt with that. Would he have likely have crossed paths with Robert Johnson? Uh, it's quite possible. Yeah, I think it's quite possible. Hmm. I know that's such well-trodden territory, the, yeah. uh, the crossroads and so forth. But these stories right. of, of Robert Johnson... Uh, being an incredibly average guitarist and hanging around Sun House and Sun was kind of annoyed by him. And, and then, you know, like <laughs> a year later, Sun, uh, Robert Johnson returns as his gar uh, guitar virtuoso. Uh, yeah. Separate the wheat from the chaff there. We've got about five minutes before the break here, but I mean, wh where is the truth and where is the legend there, do you think? Well, the legend is that he met the devil at the crossroads and that and he traded uh, with the devil, and the devil said, you know, I'll give you these great talents as a guitarist if you, uh, you know, in turn, give me your soul. And he became this great guitarist. He came back home. Everybody was amazed. And, and then later he was poisoned and died about a year or two later. I don't particularly believe that he met the devil at the crossroads. There's no old scratch. Uh, what's that? There's no old scratch, as they called him, the devil. I don't think so. 
I don't think so. You know, I think that what happened was when he went away, something caused him to practice more, you know, or he did a lot of uh, one night stands. And over time, he got better at what he did. He may have run into other musicians who taught him a lick here, a lick there. So, um, you know, I, I think it makes for a great tale. And in fact, um, I used that analogy um, in one of my chapters in this book, Music, Mysteries in the Music Case Closed, uh, Deal with the Devil, Did the Beach Boys Steal a Song from Charles Manson, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a while. We'll definitely get into that in an hour or two. Well, my understanding also is that, you know, Johnson sort of, you know, he was very coy about it. Again, some great marketing there. He didn't deny it. Right. I'm wondering if the uh, the uh, the masked Marvel and whether that might have been the inspiration for um, uh, the masked Elvis Orion, which was uh, later revealed to be uh, was Jimmy Ellis, I guess. Well, I I don't know about that one in particular, but I found that when I did some more research on that, I found that within about Oh, a year of the Masked Marvel contest, and that was a big deal that, that went, you know, around the country, really, with these flyers and things and got people involved, that there were now wrestlers started to appear. I saw classified ads of wrestlers calling themselves the Masked Marvel. There was then a uh, TV not a TV, but a serial series that I think was shown in movie theaters, like little shorts. Each time you go to the theater, you'd see another chapter. And that was a masked Marvel. And then there was also a comic book series called the masked Marvel. And in each case, the mask looked very similar to the one uh, that they uh, put onto this contest, Paramount records for this artist, but where they put a mask over his eyes. Uh, it was very similar to the Lone Ranger mask, if people are familiar with that. They may have all started with the uh, the masked Marvel. It's quite possible. Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective, back with more of our conversation right after these. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. 
Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. My uh, technical producer is Carlos Cagina. My live stream producer is Ryan White. Check out the Rumble and YouTube channel Strange Planet. Jim Birkenstadt is with us, the rock and roll detective, and uh, discussing his latest book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Mm-hmm. We were talking about why rock and roll is uh, so ripe for, for legends and mysteries. And uh, you've got things like, you know, the 27 Club. You've got um, so many musicians, Hendrix, Joplin, um, uh uh, Jim Morrison, uh, Kurt Cobain, who all died at the age of 27. And of course, this just feeds into the whole mystique. And we were talking about Robert Johnson and the deal with the right. devil. And um, what do you make of the the 27 Club? Is that, is this is that just you know? There's so many musicians out there working, and you combine uh, you know too much money and too much uh, access to you know sex and drugs, and uh, it, it, it just the, the perfect storm. Is that what this is all about? I think so. You know, I think, uh, you know, for people who um, are older now and they look back, if they think back to the 20s, 20, the the, at least the as I recall it, the 20s are a time when you really have to figure out who you are and discover yourself. And you you change your mind a lot on a lot of things. You're you're still figuring out your place in the world. You're now a young adult. And, you know, a lot of people start out as regular everyday people, but next thing you know, they're thrust into because they wanted to play guitar. Suddenly they're in a very successful band. There's a lot of women coming around and there's drugs and there's all kinds of things going on. And, and then the constant fame of people telling you how great you are and you see yourself on TV and the news, etc. And, you know, I think it can be very uh, difficult for some people psychologically. You know, in the case of uh, Kurt Cobain, he had come from a broken home. He uh, never felt like he exactly fit in in high school. And, you know, so and John Lennon, who, you know, his parents broke up and he ended up having to grow up with his aunt. You know, those are those are difficult traumatic events in a young person's life. And you can just see how they might affect you as you get into your twenties and cause you to do some, maybe make some bad choices. And, you know, a drug overdose could be just a, uh, a basic mistake that occurs one night. You know, nowadays we have terrible things like fentanyl, which get mixed in and such and people die. But, you know, they, back then they could die from just a mixture of drugs with some alcohol, etc. And so I don't think any of those 27 club people necessarily wanted to die. Although, well, other than Kurt Cobain, who, who committed suicide, but it was very difficult for him, I think, to suddenly be the most beloved artist of his generation and go, well, why is it me? You know, I, I was rejected in high school and my parents broke up and, you know, I, it's just a, it's a tough thing. I think a therapist could answer these questions much better than I can, but I do know that the twenties are a difficult time. 
Do you think, speaking of the 27 Club, Jim Morrison, also 27, that he kind of romanticized that idea of dying young, you know, because he, he, he was so enamored with the, the young French poets uh, mm-hmm. that that may have sort of fed into it. He had a death wish, perhaps. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question. Um, I never really investigated uh, the 27 Club, mainly because I think it's just a bit too morbid. Yeah. And and also, I think it's just, uh, you know, coincidental that that they all died at 27. So uh, one of the chapters in the book, of course, is uh, dealing with the infamous meeting uh, or relationship between the Beach Boys, namely Dennis Wilson and uh, serial killer cult leader Charlie Manson. Um so how did they, uh, how did they, Dennis Wilson, that is, and Charlie Manson, who was just freshly out of prison, I guess, a couple of years, how did they, they meet? Well, it was interesting. Uh, you know, the Beach Boys were, they epitomized this clean cut Southern California surfing culture, uh, hot rods, that sort of thing. Dennis Wilson, the drummer, was really the only Beach Boy who knew how to surf. So that was kind of funny. And here you have this other character, Charles Manson, who really represented the darkest evil fringe of the 1960s cultural spectrum. And, you know, you wonder, how could these people connect? Well, Charles Manson started to learn guitar while still in prison before he got out. And he he also at the time was learning all these different sort of oh, beliefs, you know, whether it was Christianity or um, some other sort of more bizarre uh, religious uh, groups. He was learning how to use sales pitches to get people to agree with you. And so he sort of put all these you know, crazy ideas together into one uh, belief system. And he thought, hey, you know, when I get out, I can use my guitar playing and and use those lyrics as well to help recruit members into my family or cult. And and so when he got out, he thought, you know, if I can, um, if I can get a record deal, and get my songs on the radio, this will help me expand my group of women and cult and family members uh, because they'll hear my song. And one of the songs he wrote in that time period in, in uh, 1968 was called Cease to Exist. And I call it a recruitment song, but some of the lyrics are pretty girl, pretty, pretty girl, cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Give up your world. And so he was trying to find, you know, women who had uh, run away from home, who were lost, who were maybe damaged somehow emotionally and bring them into the fold and then use his crazy belief system to lock them in uh, to do his bidding. And one of the things he decided to do was send women out hitchhiking in hopes that they could find uh, a rock star or someone in the music industry that might help connect him and hopefully he could get his deal. And uh, one day Dennis Wilson was driving back from a mountain weekend trip and he picked up two hitchhiking girls, brought them to his home. 
uh, you know, befriended them and, and they, he was telling them that he had his own Maharishi, uh, same one the Beatles had, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And they said, oh, we have our own uh, guy too, uh, our own guy. His name is Charlie. He came out of prison and, and, and uh, we really, you know, dig what he's telling us. So he left them there. Dennis left them at his house and went off to a recording session with the Beach Boys at Brian Wilson's house. But when he returned, he was welcomed into his own house by Charles Manson. Wow. <laughs> Must have really freaked him out. And the whole house was filled with all these women. This was a, the, the, the two, the hitchhikers, was it Patricia Krenwinkel? And um, yeah. I can't remember the other one. But they didn't even necessarily know who Dennis Wilson, they didn't know he was the Dennis Wilson right away, right? I don't think right away. I don't think until... Um, you know, he brought them home and they were just sitting around talking. And then, you know, he had to explain what he did for a living and, and explain he was going off to a Beach Boys recording session. So I'm, I'm assuming he told them he was a drummer. Charlie Manson must be thinking jackpot. Yeah, exactly. And so uh, Dennis Wilson became his first attempted entree into the record industry. And along the way, Dennis paid for uh, Charlie to record some demos that he listened to. And the other thing is, so we've talked about what Charles Manson's needs were. His needs were to get a deal, get the, get the word out, grow his family, his cult, try to get on the radio, etc. But Dennis Wilson also had some needs at the time. And these needs ended up matching up with each other with, with Charlie. And that is Brian Wilson was really having mental health issues at the time and was doing a lot of acid. And he was just not in a position to really get out of bed and write any hits anymore. But yet they were still recording in his basement. They were starting a new album for Capitol Records that would be called 2020. And the Beach Boys, the rest of them realized you know, we're going to all have to step up and, and write some songs to contribute to an album. So probably that was the toughest thing for Dennis Wilson as a drummer who didn't play piano, didn't play guitar, you know, to suddenly have to write a song and add a song. So that's where Charlie came in. And, and one of the songs that was on the demos that uh, Dennis paid for was Cease to Exist. And he decided to um, ask Charlie Manson for that song. And so that's where we get into, uh, was the song stolen? Was it, you know, was it okay to change any words? Was it okay to change the title? Who should own the copyright? Uh, so that it becomes um, not just a mystery, but also a legal question. Right. Um, and I guess the other needs, the other needs that Charlie Manson provided for Dennis Wilson was, uh, you know, an open pocket for drugs and, uh, yeah. you know, access to a lot of, well, a lot of women, women, because Wilson, Dennis Wilson was newly divorced and was a bit of a, a party. Uh, a, he lived hard. Let's put it that way. He was a hard he liver. Did. He did. That's, that's true. And, and on the other hand, also Dennis Wilson was very, um, very much sharing with the family, the, the Manson family group, 
He shared clothing. He bought them medicine when they needed it or sent them to the doctor. He bought them special foods. Uh, they trashed his fancy sports car. Uh, all told, Dennis spent about $100,000 when the Mansons were living with him, not to mention free rent and, and such. And so he also, you know, was, was very generous in that respect. But unfortunately, he was a bit naive about what he was getting into. Right, right. And um, I don't know if this is true, but I'd, I'd read or heard that uh, Dennis Wilson, I mean, he couldn't get rid of them. And so he ended up moving out of his own house. Yeah, as well. Stay there and then rented actually, another place. It, it's interesting. He actually did not own this house. It was a rental. And so when he went off on tour with the Beach Boys, he used that opportunity to ask his uh, buddy, uh, Greg Jacobson, to, you know, remove from the house anything that, that the Mansons had already stole, a Mansons group had already stolen or had been given. Uh, and then he had the landlord um, evict Manson and his group out of the house all while Dennis was gone. And then they didn't tell Manson where he was moving to because he didn't want them to move into the next place. So uh, Wilson and Greg Jacobson moved to a, uh, a place in Malibu, another house that they rented. Right. And, and um, I mean, they tried to produce some songs with, with Manson. What, what was he, what was he like to work with? He was not easy to work with. Um, he didn't like microphones pointing at him. They reminded him of prison life in a phallic sort of way. We'll put it oh, in there. Oh, dear Lord. Uh, he would make those comments on tape. He fidgeted a lot. He usually was high on LSD, so he wouldn't listen to direction in the studio. He was uh, also not very patient. So he didn't really want to listen to direction and he wanted to immediately become signed to a record. And he, he in fact, he played for Neil Young and Neil Young thought he had talent. Neil Young uh, went to his record label to try to help Charlie and wisely they turned it down. He went to, uh, they went, took him to, um, uh, Mama Cass's house where she sort of had this salon where where people would come over and exchange ideas and talk and all this stuff. And he was there and he tried to get uh, John Phillips of the Mamas and the Papas to get him a record deal. And John Phillips couldn't get away fast enough from Charles Manson. So some people could sort of see that he was weird and creepy early on and others it took a little bit longer. Dennis, did Dennis Wilson, was it Dennis Wilson that introduced uh, Charlie Manson to Terry Melcher? Yes, it was. And Terry was, uh, for your listeners, was a famous producer at the time, the son of Doris Day. He had produced uh, The Birds and Paul Revere and the Raiders, and he was very well respected in the industry. And when, when, uh, Charlie wasn't able to get a record deal with the Beach Boys label. He worked some more with Greg Jacobson. And then Greg said, well, why don't you talk to Terry Melcher? And Melcher went out to 
Spawn Ranch to listen to Charlie as well. <laughs> Excuse me. And and Melcher, you know, being a producer, didn't think that Charlie was ready for a record deal or or of the quality necessary to be successful as a solo artist. And Melcher at the time was was he renting or did he own the house on Cielo Drive, ten thousand and fifty Cielo Drive? He was renting that house. And um he may have moved out because of threats uh from Manson or Manson's family members because when he went to Spawn Ranch and listened to him, uh, listened to Charlie play, he used a typical producer's um gentle way of rejecting someone by saying, you know, this is really interesting music. I just don't know how to place it or I don't know how to place your type of music into the industry. And then he saw that all these people looked really hungry. So he handed Charlie $50. And then Charlie turned around and told his family that he had gotten a record deal and that the $50 was in advance. And later Melcher had to testify about this under oath, which I include in the book during the uh, murder trials. But no, you know, I would, $50 is not an advance. An advance is thousands and thousands of dollars after you sign a big, long contract. Uh, but, you know, all these, all these young people looked up to Charlie and listened to him. And so later when nothing came of that, you know, again, Charlie could get angry and say, you know, well, uh, Melcher cheated us and Melcher lied to us. So and that's what he did. And so I think when Melcher started to hear some of that, he moved out of, of that house that he was renting. And of course, unfortunately, Sharon Tate moved in. Well, yeah. And Roman Polanski. So is, uh, we just have, we have about a minute and a half here. Um, did Manson send his disciples, if you will, to 10,050 Cielo Drive, thinking that Terry Melcher still lived there? I don't believe so. From the research I did, um, I, I it was really awful having to research that chapter. Hmm. But I, uh, I read all the books by all the people who were you know, in his inner, in Manson's inner circle at the time. And they all seemed to say that Manson knew he had moved out, but he selected that house because it was a message to Terry Melcher and that Melcher would get that message after, you know, the news of all the murders there took place. And Melcher did get the message and he really, he went underground and hid out. Uh, a lot of people really left the LA area too, or, or just completely stopped going out in public and didn't let people know where they lived, etc. If they had any connection whatsoever to Manson after the murders came out. All right. We'll, uh, we'll take another time out here, bottom of the hour and uh, come back and discuss more mysteries in the music with the rock and roll detective, Jim Bergenstadt. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective author of The Beetle Who Vanished, Nevermind Nirvana, Black Market Beatles, and uh, his latest is Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Uh, we were talking about Dennis Wilson and uh, Charlie Manson. How much or how did the Manson family's murderous rampage in uh, the summer of 69, August of 69, how did that change Hollywood? How did it change the music industry? It just terrified them. I mean, the 60s had been all about peace and love to the counterculture. Like I said, there were all these people gathering at um, up in the canyon at Mama Cass's house, people from all walks of life, all getting along. Um, and this just sort of shattered the, the peace and tranquility out there. And because there were musicians involved with Charlie before the murders, and then you had murders of, uh, Hollywood type entertainment people, it just really affected both areas. I remember, um, when I was talking about this chapter to Jim Keltner, he told me a story. He said he was um, on tour at the time that the murders took place. And the uh, he had just moved into a home with his wife probably a month or so before the LaBianca family was was killed at the same same couple of days there as the Tate murders. And they live just down the street from the La Biancas, like maybe a block or two away. And Jim was on tour with, I believe, Joe Cocker's Mad Dogs and Englishmen's tour. And so he called home to his wife and, and said, oh, how, how's it going, you know, with the move in and unpacking and all the usual things. And she said, well, uh, I just got like this shock because the police came to my door and they had all this bloody clothing with them. And they asked me if, you know, if we knew anything about this. And then they had told her that the uh, LaBiancas had been killed. And one of the things that the Manson family would do is when they were leaving the scene of the crime, they'd, they'd be stripping off their clothes that were bloody from stabbing these people uh, and throw them out the windows, you know, in the very neighborhoods they were driving away from. So that's what she had to look at. So you can just imagine the horror of that sort of awful thing happening in an area where you wouldn't normally, you know, back then you wouldn't normally lock your car doors. You wouldn't even, some people weren't locking their home doors back in those days. Right. right. What a way to end the decade. Uh, the Manson murders, the, the uh, debacle at Altamont. Right. Uh, really, want, oh, go ahead. Big downer. You know, just a big downer. I mean, like Woodstock was generally thought of as a very positive event. And, you know, it's just a shame that those things happened when they did. Uh, getting back into one of the uh, the chapters in Mysteries in the Music, and uh, that is uh, Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
the whole, the whole question about this uh, assassination attempt against him in, um, was it 1976? Yeah. When uh, armed gunmen uh, basically raided his, his home and mm-hmm. a spray of bullets. Uh, he was getting, well, he was always, his music was always kind of, you know, I guess perceived as political, but he was not necessarily choosing, you know, sides between um, uh, the uh, the JLP or the the PNP. Uh, right. uh, Michael Manley, the, the 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 prime minister at the time, uh, but I guess it was maybe perceived at the time because both the PNP and the JLP, these two rival parties, they had their they basically had their own little paramilitary units out on the street. So just uh, what. What what do you think precipitated? What really was really behind that assassination uh, attempt on on Bob Marley? Well, I think uh, it might help your listeners if I back up a little bit uh, and explain that uh, for quite a while, these big U.S. multinational corporations had been digging up half of the island of Jamaica uh, to mine for an ore called bauxite, and bauxite is used to manufacture aluminum. And um, one would guess that they were, you know, they were employing Jamaicans to help them with the work, which was great, but they probably were paying pennies on the dollar to whoever owned that land to dig up all this, you know, highly valuable ore. So uh, at the time, the prime minister of Jamaica decided uh, he was he was moving towards socialism he had visited Castro in Cuba and that that sort of scared our government quite a bit because we still recalled uh, the Russians you know pointing missiles at us from Cuba and you know we didn't we weren't comfortable with Jamaica becoming another socialist island like Cuba The Cold War was still going on. So uh, Kissinger, you know, came down. He was our secretary of state. And he he said to uh, Manley, you know, I think you really need to change what you're doing here. And then we'll loan you more money or give you more money and help help your country. Uh, But we don't like the direction you're going. And Manley turned around and he socialized all the land and all the bauxite. And basically told Kissinger, go home, you know, I'm going to do it my way. We're going to run the country as socialists and you can do what you want with your country. So Henry Kissinger and the U.S. government sent down a significant number of agents who were in the CIA. And they were uh, given disguises or fake titles as uh, members of the U.S. Embassy in Jamaica, which had only previously had like two people in the whole building. So now all of a sudden there were 30 and and roughly 28 of them were CIA agents. So their goal was to uh, disrupt the election that was going to be coming up later in the year. And they were hopeful that the... um, the uh, conservative opponent would win the election and that uh, Manley would be out of office and then they could go back to digging, digging their ore. 
Right. Edward Siega, I guess, was the... Uh, the Siega, right. The, and in fact, there were signs painted by opponents that would write C-I-A-G-A <laughs> on, the, on the fences and things. So it was in this sort of world of... And you, you, you rightly described it as it was like two gangs, paramilitary gangs, were fighting over an election. And so it was pretty violent. And... Uh, Bob Marley wanted to bring people together, and so he wanted to hold a concert called Smile Jamaica. And just to keep this short, uh, he had to approach Manley's government in order to get permission to do it. And uh, Manley basically co-opted the concert and made it look as if he and Marley were together on re-electing Prime Minister Manley. Uh, the poster that I show in the book, the illustration shows, you know, by the authority of uh, Prime Minister Manley's administration, we present Bob Marley and the Whalers. So it really looks like, you know, almost like a campaign concert for him. And Bob was very upset by that. But, you know, he he wasn't uh, an expert on on politics and such. He just wanted to bring both sides together and have a peaceful concert. So the shooting happened literally two days before the concert was to take place. And um, it was a very scary situation. Uh, Rita Marley was driving away at the time and got shot in the back of the head with a bullet. Bob escaped with just a bullet lodged in his elbow. And the whalers were in the other room and when that when gunman went into that living room where they were rehearsing and sprayed the room with bullets you know they all either ran jumped behind couches or ran into the bathroom or wherever they could go and so uh, oh and bob's manager took five bullets in the back and nearly died he had to be flown to uh miami to be saved so it was a very scary time Right. And, and two days later, there's Bob Marley on stage performing with, I, I believe the bullet was still in his, uh, his arm, if I'm not mistaken. It was, and there was no guarantee that he was even going to play. I mean, uh, he went through a lot of heavy thinking at the time. And um, the, one of the reasons why this uh, CIA conspiracy theory came up was that the, the, the main cameraman hired uh, to film this concert two days out was named Carl Colby. And Carl Colby was the son of William Colby, who had been the director of the CIA. Just take a quick time out, uh, Jim, and we'll pick up on that point. Jim Bergenstadt, the rock and roll detective, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed, the latest book. Back with more in a moment. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Rock and roll detective Jim Birkenstadt. Mysteries in the music case closed. Again, how do we get a copy, Jim? 
You can go to my author site, musicmysterybook.com, and order either signed copy, or you can click through to Amazon. You can also go to amazon.com, type in the title. It's also at barnesandnoble.com, and um, wherever books are sold, you can ask for it there. We're talking about uh, the assassination attempt against uh, reggae, reggae star Bob Marley. And at his home, and then two days later, after his house is sprayed with bullets, as you mentioned, his manager took, took five in the back, miraculously survived. Big discussion as to, well, his, his wife, Rita Marley, took a, a bullet in, in the back of the head. Then there was a great discussion as to whether he would perform. I think everyone around him was trying to talk him out of it. Did he not just insist, you know, the show must go on? No, I, he, I mean, he wanted to play, but at the same time, he thought, am I going to be a sitting target? up on stage, you know, you're not, you're not in a, you know, here he was hiding out in an undisclosed location for his safety. And now he's expected to come out in front of thousands of people and just stand up on a stage. That's a pretty frightening thought. And I think ultimately everybody, you know, left it up to him to decide what he was going to do. He was very brave to, to go back out there after that. Right. There's that famous photograph on stage where he is clasping hands with Prime Minister Michael Manley and the uh, the leader of the PNP, Edward Siega. Um, Siega looking, I don't know, a little uncomfortable <laughs> with the whole situation. I mean, it's it's possible that he that he was that Bob Marley was standing up on stage with one of those two people that maybe even ordered the hit. I don't know. Yeah, well, I should mention for your listeners that picture took place a year later at another. But on the on the night of the concert after the shooting, neither of those candidates were up on on stage. Ah, Thank you for the clarification. That was a year later. Ah, okay, about a year later. Uh, But, you know, nevertheless, same you know, you brought up the same question. You know, was he standing there going, I wonder which one of these guys might have had something to do with this? Uh, and then, of course, there are people who think that the U.S. and the CIA had something to do with this. So I actually spoke with uh, the chief agent, uh, CIA agent, who was down in Jamaica at the time. And I remember calling him out of the blue and oh, well, I should tell you that I, I couldn't get the the cla- the previously classified documents from either the Obama administration or the Trump administration. They both answered my request with the same form letter, which was we can neither confirm nor deny whether uh, we have any information of CIA records dealing with Bob Marley, which <laughs> means yeah, it's a classic line, which means we have them and you can't have them. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. So I actually went to WikiLeaks, which is, of course, that famous site that has obtained stolen uh, government documents from the American government. And there they were. So that helped me find that it had a double list, which was very interesting. It had a list of the names of uh diplomats and titles and then it had their their name and their real title with the cia so i just happened to pick a name that i thought um would be easy to google because it had his middle name and you know it was sort of an unusual name and so i found him i called him up he's retired in 
somewhere, a, one of the 50 states. <laughs> and he wants to remain anonymous, of course. And I said, hey, uh, it's Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective. He goes, what's that? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told him I was working on on this uh story about Bob Marley in Jamaica. And he goes, Oh, I love Bob Marley. I said, so you were, uh, you were working as a diplomat, weren't you? Uh, in 1976 when Bob Marley was shot and then he was supposed to have a concert and he says, yeah, I was, I was a diplomat. I was the assistant to the ambassador. I said, but weren't you also chief of station for the CIA while you were down there? And he started laughing and he said, Jim, how do I answer that without getting in trouble? And I said, I think you just did. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was very interesting to talk to him and get his perspective on what their priorities were, the CIA priorities. And I'll leave that to the reader to, to, to see that, read that. It was also interesting. I spoke with Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North. Ooh. Who many people remember got in trouble with the uh, Iran Contra, sort of, yeah, yeah, Iran Contra and drugs for arms and all of that. And I said to him, "Now I know you didn't work under President Ford, but you worked under the next Republican president, which was Ronald Reagan. Did you ever talk to Gerald Ford?" And he said, "As a matter of fact, I did." He said, "When you come into that position of National Security Advisor." You always like to go back to the previous administration that's from your party and talk to that president about situations that were going on in different countries. And I said, Jim, oh, that's interesting. Jim, we'll pick up on that point uh, when we come back. We'll take a quick time out. Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I got to tell you, it's great to be talking about rock mysteries and rock legends again. Uh, it's not something I've had an opportunity to discuss on the radio since the passing of my late collaborator, R. Gary Patterson, who, of course, was a frequent guest on this program. And uh, Gary passed away. We're coming up on the fifth anniversary, May 26th, which coincided with the 50th anniversary of the U.S. release of his favorite album, The Beatles, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Very fitting that Gary would die on that date. And uh, Gary and I, of course, were preparing to launch a radio program on rock and roll myths, legends, and curses when he died. And then I continued on with the project and launched a podcast instead called The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, which was produced in conjunction with Westwood One and the Chris Jericho Network, and I produced about 40 episodes, I think, of the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, and I'm very proud of it. People ask me all the time, where did it go, and is it coming back? Uh, it's not currently available anywhere online, unless you happen to be a Patreon donor, but who knows? One day, one day, maybe, I'll bring it back and start producing new episodes. It was a lot of fun. Uh, he's dubbed the Rock and Roll Detective Jim Birkenstadt. Again, has spent a lifetime researching, writing, and consulting in pop music history. His uh, books on the unreleased recordings of the Beatles called Black Market Beatles and the making of Nirvana's seminal album, Nevermind, are critically acclaimed. Uh, Jim has served as a consultant to the Beatles, George Harrison, the Traveling Wilburys, the band Garbage, and many international record labels. 
And uh, his latest is called Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. We were talking about um, uh, Oliver North, Mm -hmm. uh, who worked under uh, Ronald Reagan, the Ronald Reagan administration. And you were asking him about uh, Gerald Ford's administration, which uh, happened at the same time as the assassination attempt against Bob Marley in 76. So Marley did talk to the Ford, or sorry, uh, Oliver North did talk to Gerald Ford. And what did he ask? Well, he, he asked him what happened. He asked him whether the United States would have considered um, uh, assassinating a, a non-elected person and, that, and also what in general the CIA was doing back then, because uh, if, you, if you go back to the U.S. history books and look at the 70s, you'll see that the CIA was creating regime change in other countries by assassinating leaders. And um, he taught, and so North also pointed out that uh, during the time Gerald Ford was in office, uh, Congress held a number of hearings on this and, and, and came down pretty hard on the CIA in 1976 and said, we don't want any more assassinations and we don't want any more uh, manipulating regime change in other countries. And uh, it was a bill, it was passed as a bill and Gerald Ford signed that bill. Uh, again, I'll leave it to the readers to uh, see what Gerald Ford said and, and what Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North learned with respect to uh, whether or not the CIA started to follow that new legislation or whether they ignored it. All right. Uh, and again, they can find that in Mysteries in the Music Case Close. Speaking of another alphabet agency, the FBI uh, and their investigation of um, a one-hit wonder by the Kingsman. Tell me about that story. Well, uh, many people have heard about this story, uh, that the song Louie Louie was thought to contain obscenities. And it's, it's funny because there are songs now where the actual title is an obscenity. There's a song I'll just refer to as W.A.P., which was a big hit last year, and you can Google it. And just the title alone would seem to be obscene. Yet at the time in 1964, uh, Robert Kennedy, who was then attorney general after his uh, brother, John F. Kennedy had died, he was still attorney general. And he got a letter claiming that Louie Louie contained obscene lyrics. And so he passed it on to the FBI. And the FBI then spent the next two and a half years. And and, uh, in today's money, $62 million in taxpayer money. Oh, my. Yeah, to to look into this. And it it became a witch hunt. And I went through over 100 pages of uh, the unclassified now documents of what the FBI did in their investigation and was completely aghast at what a horrible investigation they did and how, how poor it was done. You know, like somebody puts on headphones and turns the record backwards, plays it at a different speed. Yet 
They're not thinking about, oh, maybe we should listen to the record and have the official lyrics next to us while we listen to the record and read the words. Or maybe we should, um, maybe we should interview or find out, maybe we should find out who the lead singer was on that, on that recording and talk to him. So there's just a lot of mistakes made and uh, they never came to any sort of real conclusion. They just sort of let the investigation peter out. But along the way, there are quite a few interesting surprises that I, uh, that I'll leave to the reader again, because it's so, it's the funniest sort of Keystone cop investigation I've ever looked at. And, you know, I think it's fun to poke fun at the FBI when they deserve it. I think most people agree with that. The FBI involved in a witch hunt. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? <laughs> were the Kingsmen aware that they were being surveilled and, and uh, or I don't know to what extent they were surveilled, but investigated? They were surveilled. They sure, and they knew about it because they saw the G-Men standing in the back of these uh, uh, dance halls that they were doing a tour for because Louie Louie had become a big national hit. And of course, the more that kids in playgrounds started writing out what they thought the lyrics were, uh, the more that just sort of created an interest in, in kids wanting to buy the record. So it was a big hit. They're touring and the FBI, you know, were the only people in the dance halls wearing the famous dark hat, dark suit, you know, glasses, etc. And the rest were, were school kids, you know, going to a dance. So what was interesting was the FBI was trailing them on the tour and one of their thoughts was, well, since we know the recording must be obscene, they'll have to actually sing live the obscenities when they sing Louie Louie. And of course, that never happened. They sang the actual words. And eventually, uh, as I describe in the book, um, they corner the band uh, in a uh, like a little banquet room of a hotel where they're staying you know, they kind of surprise them, hustle them all in, read them their rights, but don't give them the opportunity to call a lawyer and start questioning them. And so I have their questions and answers in there. And then I also point out what the FBI failed to find or ask some of the questions that they should have asked. And again, it, for me, it comes from being a former trial attorney and knowing when you're investigating something what the relevant questions should have been and weren't asked. So the Kingsmen, that was a, the, they were a one hit wonder. Is that because were they derailed their career because of the FBI investigation or was, was it just simply they were a one, a one hit wonder band? I, I don't think that that investigation derailed them. They continued on and uh, they recorded more music. Uh, I just think that they were a one hit wonder band. It wasn't even their song. You know, it was a cover cover song. Well, it's a great story and uh, part of the uh, uh, rock and roll uh, mythology, mythos rather, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. Jim, uh, what a great uh, privilege to meet you and hang out for two hours. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. It was a real privilege for me as well. I appreciate being on your show and I, I really enjoyed our discussion and, and you had some great questions. 
The Rock and Roll Detective, Jim Birkenstad. Mysteries in the Music, case closed. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.